I, I want to advocate that everybody should kind of be their voice for their autonomy, for their individuality, for the needs that they want to have addressed because it's so easy to feel kind of steamrolled as a patient. And as a doctor, we don't always think about how we can, how we're kind of in this really strong power dynamic and how we just do our thing without thinking about the intricate details that are different from one patient to another. So that's- Are you ready to upgrade your health to a new level and do so by learning from experts in the field of lifestyle medicine and plant-based nutrition? Well, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Plant-Based DFW Podcast Weekly Show. We are your hosts, Dr. Rizwan Bukhari and Maya Acosta. Every week, we will feature guests who are either physicians, dietitians, health coaches, or chefs who will tell us about their journeys towards becoming plant-based and how they have helped others. And as you dive into the episodes, never forget, the more you implement these healthy lifestyle changes, the more you will upgrade your health. Welcome back to another episode. Today, you will meet Dr. Jessica Pierce from Dallas, Texas. She is an OB-GYN and also a fellow podcaster. This year, she was set to open her own med spa and then COVID happened. As a result, she was able to focus on her other passion, which is to create a safe place for topics that would otherwise be considered taboo. She has created a Facebook group, an IG account, and a podcast, all with the name Ludicrous Uterus. The first five minutes of the conversation, we touch on some of the topics that are considered taboo, such as defining the word binary, speaking about the transgender community, and how terms in general can cause people to feel excluded. We move on to talk about how she works closely with her patients in getting them to optimal health if they want to someday become parents. We touch on topics like breast cancer, concerns over consuming soy, endometrial cancer, insulin resistance, PCOS, and the importance of mental health. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Jessica Pierce is here to speak to us about women's health. Welcome, Dr. Pierce. Thank you so much, Maya. It's so awesome to be here with you today. You had worked at creating this med spa here in the Dallas area that you were about to open, and then COVID hit. Well, so um, something that I've been really working for, working towards um, for the last year was thinking about opening kind of my own practice that focused on um, female like gynecological health and med spa services as a way to incorporate all aspects of um, total health embodiment. So mind, body, I have been training for lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, obesity medicine as a way to bring all of that to gynecological health, because I think all of those things are really important when we take care of ourselves, when we feel good about ourselves, when we feel like we look good, all of those things impact our um, self-esteem, our mental health, and have a 100% connection to our physical health. Um, And then COVID hit. And so it kind of put a break on um, me pursuing opening a a practice in the middle of all of this. So what has actually transpired is something that has always been another passion of mine. And that is creating um, a space where women uh, and people who identify as women can come and talk about some of the more kind of secret shameful, taboo topics about sexuality and health that we are not always able to talk about because of time constraints um, or just our own personal um, apprehensions about that. So currently I'm, I'm in the middle of uh, launching and kind of nurturing this community called the Ludicrous Uterus, which just talks about some of these very specific topics um, with guests on a podcast. We explore things just to put information out there, let people know um, 
you know, that they're not alone if they're experiencing these sorts of things or they're feeling these things and just creating this open mindedness about life and community and what, what women experience and how we can all kind of support one another and all of our different experiences in in this life. Well, you know, I've been listening to your podcast. And (laughs) I agree, these are topics that people do tend to shy away from because they're considered taboo. But like you say, you created a safe space. So those conversations can happen. Can you kind of give us a little example of some of the guests that you've had so far? Oh, Yes. So um, actually, one one of the guests that I just had on last week is a, she, I actually worked with her in my residency, but she is very much the epitome of body confidence, body positivity, and kind of came out as a photographer, but then came on to the other side um, doing like boudoir photo shoots and using that as a way to find body confidence to help her self-confidence and using it as a way to empower other women. So she was one of the um, earlier guests, but some of the other people that I have that that are talking about some of the more taboo topics, we're talking about um, just like sexuality, pleasure, self-pleasure, um, orgasms. I mean, things that people don't want to talk about, you know, G-spots, clitorals, like all of that stuff. And so um, we're also talking about transgender and um, non-binary and asexual communities and what what sort of obstacles do they have and how can we be allies? Um, I'm a very big believer in saying the things that um, we've been told too long not to, not to say because it's going to offend somebody, it's going to make somebody uncomfortable because as women, we have been kind of forced to almost live this like kind of trauma experience where we can't say things that are important to us, that are valid to us because we're always so afraid of what the repercussions are. And so um, a lot of the underlying work for what I do is, is saying things that makes people feel uncomfortable because we're never going to be able to find solutions if we don't start calling out those topics that we don't feel comfortable talking about. You definitely have to be open-minded in in many ways. But at the same time, you know, we are really living at a time where people are becoming more and more open. And you mentioned non-binary. Can you tell our guests, our listeners, what that means? Um, A lot of people in the non-binary community don't... um, they don't identify necessarily as he or she. So they identify as they or them. And um, I am not a non-binary individual, so I don't know, I don't want to speak to their experience, but what it has done for me is has allowed me to check my language. So even in things when we, I say, hey guys, welcome to the show, I try to take walk back and say, hey, everyone, it just kind of makes you focus on the language because even in the world of feminism and we talk about feminism and female power and power to the vagina and things like that, but it actually is somewhat isolating for people in the non-binary community because they, they feel like sometimes they're left out. I've had people tell me that they felt like they, they're left out just in the use of the language that we're mm-hmm. using when we talk about kind of female empowerment. So there is one other topic that you spoke about where I also learned that that the verbiage is very important. You talked about obesity medicine. And I yesterday, I happened to actually interview a specialist in that field here in the Dallas area. And I kind of started with asking, well, ob- obesity um, is still a medical term, right? And you know, because of, say, the patients my husband works with. And she said, well, 
We actually watch, we're very careful about how we say that. To say that someone is obese is to label them as being this. The The term itself is just so offensive that we just talk about more managing weight issues, for example. Yes, so, or saying like a patient with obesity instead of saying an obese patient. That's right. So uh, Dr. Pierce, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we move in uh, to the topic of what you specialize in? Yes. So, um, well, I am a board certified OBGYN in Texas, but I was born and raised in Florida. And um, I have a lovely little family with a, have a husband and a five-year-old daughter and a almost eight-year-old stepson who's with us every other week. And um, my in-laws live up here with us in Texas. And so it is always just a crazy situation happening every other weekend when we've got both kids together. Um, we rescued a, a dog right before the pandemic started. And she's just the sweetest little dog that just, I mean, the kids love her. We love her. She's just brought a whole new level of, um, I think, love to the family because this was our first family pet together. Um, what is her name? Her name is Bev, and she yeah. was a rescue, and they found her on the side of the street. She probably came from a puppy mill and had just had a litter probably like four days before they found her. So um, she's just just a, a gem for, for our family, and she puts up with a lot of the, the craziness that, that my kids do around her. <laughs> I can imagine the intensity. She just came into the family. Now everybody has to stay at home. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> what a perfect time to have her though, because that's when we can all use a lot of comfort and love. It has been. It was just absolutely serendipitous that we got her when we did. And, um, you know, it just kind of makes you realize like when you stop and think about all the different ways how we like impact other people's lives. Obviously, we have a, a dog, but like how we interact with other people and how just we cross paths with people at times that we never would have even anticipated happening. And so uh -huh. part of the things that I think COVID and um, all of this has really made me realize is that I want to really focus on living in the moment and finding happiness in the moments that I'm in right now instead of looking for the next step, looking for the next moment to be happy because I feel like a lot of us live that way. And so COVID has really just highlighted for me, you know, I feel like I've been having the wrong mentality for the last 36 years and now I have the chance to kind of really reshape that mentality. So it's been, it's been a silver lining, that's for sure. <laughs> Yes, the emphasis has been self-care and really revisiting how important relationships are in our lives. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. So now, um, did you always know that you wanted to go into medicine? And why did you pick OBGYN to become an OBGYN? I've known from a really young age, actually, the memory that sticks out to me, um, and I'm pretty sure I even wrote about it in my med school essay, was when my sister, I have a sister that's two years younger than me. And one day we were riding our bikes really, really fast with another neighborhood friend. And I remember taunting my sister and be like, you're never going to be as fast as me. And she tried to stand up on her bike and pedal so hard. But when she did, she flipped over, busted her chin. This was um, the day of Halloween. So we had to go to the emergency room. She couldn't go trick or treating. Um, my mom did let me still like go trick-or-treating if I wanted to. And so I went and decided I was going to get candy and I was going to share it with my sister. But I remember thinking at that moment, I was so fat. Like, of course I felt terrible that 
I, it was my fault that she, that that happened to her. But I remember thinking, just being so fascinated with like the stitches and just the whole aspect of it. And that's when I knew that I was going to go into medicine, but I thought for sure I would have never gone into OBGYN. That was the one field I was never going to go into because the call schedule was crazy. There was no way I was going to deal with like just being on call all the time. And um, my original plan, I had actually set up rotations for uh, general surgery residency because I wanted to do um, pediatric cardiology. I wanted to be a surgeon for um, for children with heart disease and heart issues. And um, that was my path. That was what I really wanted to do. And then I had um, my last rotation of my med school year was OBGYN and fell in love with it and had to retract all of my um, rotations for general surgery and tried to fill them in last minute with OB rotations. And that was it. There was no looking back. <laughs> you play such an important role uh, when it comes to really guiding a woman through her pregnancy. Um, so tell us a little bit ab about what that's like for you uh, to guide someone from the beginning all the way through. Basically, once birth happens, your role is done, right? Yeah, to, yes. So to an extent. But, um, you know, when I think that's probably one of the most fascinating parts of being an OBGYN is you get to walk through this journey with with so many women. And a lot of them I have helped um, maximize their health and, and even do procedures to help them achieve a pregnancy. Um, so when you get to have that component and then you see them have a pregnancy and then walk them through the pregnancy, there's so many emotions. I mean, there are so many emotions when you are pregnant, when you're caring for pregnant women, because you're just, you, you're so invested not only in one person, but now two, and sometimes three and four, depending on how many, you know, babies they're carrying. Um, and then when it gets to the time of their delivery, I mean, I think every OBGYN, no matter how long you've been doing it, there's always a sense of some sort of like anxiety around the delivery because there's so many things that can go wrong. And so our job is to always think about how do we navigate if something goes wrong. But 95% of the time, it is a beautiful experience. You're there to power women through who think that they can't do it. They think they can't push or they think that they can't um, do it without an epidural. They just like you really have the chance to look them in the eye and tell them you're a mom. You're, you have been a mom since you've got pregnant. Your baby's going to be here. You can do this. And this is your chance to start right now to show yourself how strong you are. Um, and then hearing the cry. I mean, it is a great experience. There are off, obviously there are very, very hard moments. I mean, we all probably are aware of, um, you know, Chrissy Teigen losing her uh, baby at a, around 20, I think baby was like 22, 23 weeks. So it, those moments are hard. They are I mean, obviously harder for the family, but we are all, we go through those emotions with them. Um, and it, so you, you have a lot of ups and downs, but you get to be with them through that journey, um, even after pregnancy. So we still know that pregnancy has a, a huge toll on the body. There are still risks after the baby is born. So we still do a really good job of keeping connected with women afterwards, especially because postpartum depression and anxiety is a really big deal. And people don't talk about it because everybody thinks something's wrong with them if they don't feel connected to their baby in the first few weeks. So that's a really important thing that we still try to maintain open communication, um, even after the baby's born, because everybody thinks about the baby, but 
moms tend to get forgotten once the baby is there. So our, our relationship never really ends. Um, we continue to grow with them. And if we're lucky, we get to go through their changes as they go through perimenopause and menopause and all of the changes that come along with that. Well, that makes sense that you continue to to stay involved in your patient's health. And you mentioned also um, previously that you work early on and through the pregnancy on really just um, optimizing their health. What sort of recommendations do you make for the patients? So one of the things that um, we all like I always focus on um, with anybody who's of reproductive age and may or may not desire children is I have that conversation with them. And if they are interested in in talking about children, then we talk about how to, um, really maximize their health. So we talk about like a kind of a preconception visit where we talk about these things. And these are things we do all the time, but sometimes we, we really sit down and focus specifically on what is it about your health that we need to tee up. So we look at their medical history. We look at their medications. We look at their jobs. We look at their social history. Have they had a history of infections before like gonorrhea, chlamydia, things like that? What are their periods like? Are we worried about endometriosis, things that could impact fertility and impact to pregnancy? What is their overall health? Do they have diabetes? Do they have hypertension? Do they have thyroid disease or autoimmune disease? Because all of those things play a role in pregnancy and risk factors. Um, We talk about smoking, drinking, alcohol, chemical exposures, work exposures, vaccines. I mean, every single aspect we sit down with. And diet is another huge one that I talk about with a lot of women because Everybody knows folic acid. I need to be taking folic acid before I get pregnant, but people don't realize that um, your diet before pregnancy really sets a standard for how your pregnancy is going to be. And if you start off um, a pregnancy being uh, having being having uh, excess weight um, or having obesity or diabetes, it sets you up for a lot of complications during pregnancy. So I really do focus a lot on nutrition and. Um, counseling about dietary intake. Can you talk to us a little bit about breast cancer and how often do you treat something like that? Yeah, I will tell you, um, you know, interestingly, some of the, so when I, and I didn't train a very long time ago, I've been, I've been out for three years. So it's not like, you know, things have changed that much, but things have changed so much. When I trained, we were always telling women monthly self-breast exams in the shower to feel for lumps and bumps. And actually some of the data has said now, like you don't necessarily have to do that, but you have to have breast awareness. So if something feels off, you need to make sure you're conscientiously checking that. Because a lot of times what happens is most breast cancer is actually found by patients themselves, by women themselves. And so they'll feel a lump or a bump. They'll come into us. We'll do an exam and um, we will decide, okay, what is the next step? It's either going to be an ultrasound or a mammogram, depending on how old they are, um, what their family history is. But anytime there's a lump or a bump, we get some further imaging. And then depending on the imaging, um, if there's something that looks like it needs to be biopsied or evaluated further, then we send them to a breast specialist. Because OBGYNs, we don't... um, we don't treat breast cancer. We don't do any excision of any of that because there are people way smarter than us that have trained for that. So we get to kind of help bridge the the relationship between the patient and a specialist to, to do that. Um, I have had a handful of women who have come to me with a lump and it ends up being breast cancer. I have had women who have gone years and years and years not wanting to get a mammogram um, because they were 
afraid of their breasts being squished. And when they finally did, they had a late stage cancer. So these are real things that can happen. But um, when you are when you are conscientiously aware of your body and what your breasts feel like, looking if there's any skin changes, any pain that's just not going away, any discharge, any any rash or anything that looks abnormal on the outside, those are things that you should never wait on. You no no doctor is ever going to make you feel bad for coming in because you have a concern about your breasts. So mm-hmm. never ever ever second guess being an inconvenience because we will always rather be safe rather than sorry. The first time I had a mammogram was in my 20s and in my late 20s. And really, it was because of fibrocystic breasts that I had at the time. Physicians at the time told me that at twice, they told me it was because of my coffee consumption that my breasts were hurting. But I will tell you, Dr. Pierce, that since I've improved my diet from going plant based and reducing the oil intake and the sugar intake, I do not have painful breasts anymore. Yes, yes, there is absolute, there's so much data about coffee consumption and fibrocystic breasts, especially in premenopausal women. Um, Cigarette smoking can have an impact on breast disease as well. Um, And one of the things that's actually really common for women who have fibrocystic breasts or just just who have painful breasts without any sort of underlying um, physical cause for it, um, vitamin E is actually something that's really helpful. So if you have a diet where you're conscientiously eating like moderate amounts of vitamin E within the safe recommendations, then that is something that we have used even in clinic. And I know breast specialists will recommend taking vitamin E daily when you just kind of have like sore breasts if there's nothing else physical going on. So diet absolutely has um, a huge impact on breast health. Can you talk to us about the relationship between breast cancer and nutrition? You know, inflammation is one of those things that in the body, we kind of have this like like hazy view of what is inflammation, but there are a lot of um, chemicals, a lot of foods that we interact with every day that can cause inflammation and inflammation can cause disease process in the body. And I think that's something that traditionally medicine has kind of pushed to the side because it's not easy. It's not so easy to measure inflammation. Now we have some markers that we can look at for inflammation, but dietary intake is the huge contributor to inflammation in the body. So when you're looking at plant-based diets versus the, you know, standard American diet, which is the like high animal fat, high saturated fat diet, those, the the diets that are higher in animal, in animal proteins and saturated fats do have actually identifiable proteins in them that cause inflammation. So some of those common ones are um, something called IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor, and that's something that is really high in meat and dairy products and can cause inflammation. You have certain types of um, fatty acids that can cause inflammation in the body. Um, And even some cholesterol can cause, like high cholesterol foods can cause inflammation. And all of those things have direct impact on other cells in the body, their, their ability to do their jobs. And so when it comes to cancer, if you have a body that's constantly like inflamed or being exposed to these um, proteins that can disrupt your body's normal ability to do its job, then you are effectively increasing your risk for cancer. And we see Mm -hmm. that with breast cancer. We see that with ovarian cancer. And we see that with endometrial cancer, cancer of the uterus. So that's why plant-based diet has really come to the forefront when it comes to talking about 
women's health and gynecological health because a lot of the things that we thought were true in the past, that's only part of the story. And diet really has a huge impact on on your body's ability to kind of fight off cancer cells. You don't really specialize in this, but how do you kind of guide your patients when they're under high levels of stress? What kind of outlets can you recommend? You have to realize how important your mental health is to your physical health because there's a huge connection between how your body processes stress in the body and the impact that that has on your physical health. And so there's, again, tons of data out there to show how stress disrupts certain um, pathways in the body and can increase your risk for fatigue, diabetes, hypertension. Um, so mental health is a really important thing, but how do we how do we advocate for our own like mental well-being? And a lot of times we put emphasis on go to the spa, have a massage, you know, treat yourself to a manicure, pedicure. But what I've really found um, that's been really helpful for me is actually just not thinking about what can I do to get happy, to feel happy, to feel stress-free, but what can I what can I change about what I'm thinking about right at this moment to look at it positively instead of negatively? And it sounds cliche and it sounds so ridiculous, but there's the my most favorite book, top five books ever that I've just read. It's called The Happiness Advantage. And the author talks about how starting to look in your moment when you're feeling stressed, you're feeling overworked, you're feeling anxious, getting connected with yourself and saying, what can I view about this in a positive view? And that changes something in you. That changes over time. The more you do that, you're actually changing the levels of dopamine and serotonin in your body. And over time, the more you do that, it changes your brain's ability to respond to stress and may actually change change some physical parts of your brain so that you can start to think about things more positively. You don't get as easily overwhelmed and frustrated and, and flustered when it comes to stress. And so I think that's a really big thing that we have missed in medicine is focusing on that because we don't know how to tell people how to do that because it's we don't know how to do that. What I love about learning lifestyle medicine and integrative medicine is that there's such a huge emphasis on that type of perspective of healing. And we just have to do a better job of educating people to make that a, a possibility because not everybody has money to go spend to do a massage and do this, or they don't have childcare to do that. And so you're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up to think, if I do this, then I'll be happy. Your happiness comes after you succeed at something. And that's not how it should be. Your happiness can be instant in the moment if you choose to. How do you feel about soy? So we kind of talked a little bit about breast cancer. And I think, you know, one of the things that I want to just holler out there, because a lot of people, a lot of people will think that, oh, if I eat this, if I eat on a plant-based diet and I'm eating a lot of estrogen type foods, I'm going to increase my risk of breast cancer. And overwhelmingly, the data says no. Not only does it say no, but the data out there shows that people who are on plant-based diets and who, who consume more plant-based foods as opposed to animal-based foods, not only don't have an increased risk of cancer, but you may lower your risk of breast cancer. And the benefits are actually higher when you start at a younger age. So like I feed, my daughter loves edamame. I can't get her to eat tofu, but this child will like suck up down a bowl of edamame if I let her. And I've had people tell me, well, aren't you worried about, no, I'm not worried about breast cancer because I know what the data shows. So I want to put that out there that 
having a plant-based diet is actually helpful because what happens is when you're eating plant-based diet, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this multiple times, it's the phytoestrogens. And phytoestrogens are like estrogen in the body, but they are helpful. They're not harmful. There are estrogen mimickers that are in processed foods and animal-based protein foods that are called endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And those are the ones that really can have a negative impact on the body. So when you have these unhealthy standard American diets, high fat, high trans fat, high cholesterol foods, you're exposing yourself to these endocrine-disrupting estrogen mimickers and can increase your risk. But the phytoestrogens from plant-based diet have not been shown to increase your risk of breast cancer. I'm so glad that you bring that up because a lot of times people may fear the soy, but do not even think about all the other chemicals and things that are found in milk, red meat. Yes. The other thing, so as a gynecologist that I deal a lot with is um, like pre-cancer and even cancer of the uterus. Um, so we call it endometrial cancer. And for a while, you know, we have always thought that, okay, if you're a woman who is um, overweight or obese, your body has all this extra estrogen from the fat because fat, visceral fat inside of our body does have the opportunity to transform like uh, certain androgens, so male hormones, into estrogen in the body through a specific enzyme. And so we've always thought the more fat that you had on your body, the more estrogen your body could make in a process called aromatization, and that could increase your chance for endometrial cancer because that estrogen stimulates the lining of the uterus. And what we found is that's only part of the story. So a lot of the research has actually shown that one of the really big contributing factors when it comes to cancer of the uterus, endometrial cancer, is insulin resistance. And so insulin resistance is becoming kind of the forefront of a lot of um, underlying mechanism for disease. And so what, how does insulin resistance impact um, your risk of, of uh, endometrial cancer. Well, one is, like I said, unfortunately, we see a lot more in women who are overweight or are obese. So when you are overweight or are obese, you're consuming the standard American diet. You're not really like, you know, putting good quality food in your body. You are absolutely at increased risk for diabetes, prediabetes, diabetes, and insulin resistance, meaning your body's making more and more insulin to try to compensate for the glucose that you're getting from the foods that you're eating. So at some point, your body kind of stops responding and just keeps making insulin to overcome the glucose that you're taking. But that insulin resistance actually can trigger cells in the lining of the uterus to change and become higher risk for mutating and then can lead to endometrial cancer. So there's a really big impact on or a really big relationship between diet and um, endometrial cancer. And so it's something that I also, again, have started to talk about with patients is it's not just about losing weight or having a specific number. It's about what type of foods are you putting in your body? Because we've got high glycemic, low glycemic foods, you know, there's all these different things, but it's really about making sure that you're getting these whole food, unprocessed um, nutrients in your body to kind of limit that. We've always just thought about obesity, but we're not thinking about the impact of insulin resistance as a um, factor of obesity that can contribute to yeah. endometrial cancer. What about PCOS? I would love to talk about PCOS. So PCOS is, um, it's really, it's a, such a common diagnosis for women. And basically we diagnose it on clinical findings. So women will tend to have very irregular periods. They have signs of hyperandrogenism, meaning that they have really like excess acne, excess hair growth um, in places not on their head, um, or they'll have lab evidence of 
elevated testosterone, elevated male androgens. Um, and then an ultrasound finding can show that they have multiple cysts on their ovaries. So uh, we make that diagnosis clinically. There's not one test for PCOS. But one of the things that we are seeing with PCOS is, again, that insulin resistance. And for a long time, we had this kind of typical picture of what someone with PCOS looked like. They tend to be overweight. Maybe they have high blood pressure, diabetes. Um, but actually about 25% of women with PCOS are not overweight at all. One of the patients that I had with the worst PCOS I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, her ovaries were like huge. Like, and this, she, she weighed like 90 pounds. She was the skinniest patient and she had ovaries that took up like half of her pelvis. And so there's not, it's not just about um, the weight, but again, it's about that insulin resistance. And for some people, it's just, there's a genetic component to it. And so diet will help, but it's not the only answer. But for a lot of people, diet really is um, an important component to that. There's actually, there was a really interesting study. It was a randomized control trial in 2018 that looked at the soy intake in patients with PCOS. And they found that patients that had a diet that was consistent of 70% animal protein um, compared to a diet that had 35% animal protein and 35% soy protein found that in the group that had soy protein in addition to animal and not just animal alone, that they had a decrease in their BMI, body mass index. Mm -hmm. They had a decrease in their baseline glucose levels, a decrease in those androgen levels, the testosterone specifically, a decrease in triglyceride, and an increase in something called nitric oxide, which is mm -hmm. another chemical mm -hmm. that's produced in the body that allows for like dilation so it can decrease blood pressure, help mm -hmm. increase blood flow. Mm -hmm. um, so diet, actually, uh, a diet that's focused on plant-based can have positive effects on, on PCOS. And so when you start to have control of your weight and that insulin resistance together, then your body will be able to start ovulating more regularly. Because one of the things with PCOS, you have irregular periods because you're not ovulating, because there's a, a miscommunication from the um, pituitary gland to your ovaries. And that that line of communication is impacted by a lot of things, one of them being insulin resistance, um, because it impacts the ovaries' ability to understand and to receive the messages. So there's actually a few studies that look that show that that type of relationship exists. There's also something else. Um, it's called advanced glycation end products. They're called AGEs, and they have been studied a lot um, in PCOS, like a, in a relationship to PCOS patients. And these are basically, these AGEs are reactive molecules in foods that can come about about when you like cook or fry or, or deep oil certain foods. Um, and these AGEs can induce inflammation. They can increase insulin resistance and increase cellular damage. And all of this is exactly what you don't want in someone with PCOS because it just worsens the process, worsens the disease for you. So you'll find AGEs in beef, poultry, pork, cheese, dairy products. So a lot of the data that's out there is, is looking at how incorporating more of a plant-based diet can help overcome the insulin resistance associated with PCOS. And if you can change that, may have a direct positive impact on be healed from or move on from having PCOS. There are various factors that can contribute to infertility, but uh, PCOS seems to be one of the easier ones to kind of reverse or manage through food. Imagine just by incorporating better foods and eliminating the foods that have AG. You actually, you touched on um, one other topic that I always I just love to talk about, obviously, as a, 
OBGYN, um, in pregnancy and infertility. And so there's a lot of data at looking at how plant-based diet can, can impact both pregnancy and infertility. So from a pregnancy standpoint, we'll kind of start there. Um, you know, we all know folic acid, prenatal vitamins, yay, yay, yay. When you start talking about being vegan or even vegetarian on a, in a pregnancy, a lot of people have this misconception that that's not healthy, that you're going to be missing nutrients. And I will tell you, you can absolutely be an unhealthy vegan and an unhealthy vegetarian. There's so much like so much processed garbage food out there. And so, yes, it's very possible just as if you're consuming a, a regular Western American diet. So, but if you are um, vegetarian or vegan and you are consuming kind of these whole foods, natural foods, unprocessed foods, you are 100% safe in pregnancy. You are some, depending on how strict you are, you have to make sure you're getting the right amount of B12 and folic acid. But if you're eating a variety of whole foods, you are more often than not going to meet every single nutrient goal that you need for yourself and for your baby. So I don't want that to be a concern is that anybody thinks that you can't have a healthy vegan pregnancy or a healthy plant-based pregnancy because you can. You can even breastfeed healthily on a plant-based diet. And there are plenty of, of women and families now that are raising their children to be um, vegan and plant-based. And so there's a lot of data out there that shows that that is safe when you are consciously like aware of what you're doing in that situation. Mm -hmm. As far as infertility, so you did mention uh, PCOS is a really common cause of infertility. There's so many, so many causes of infertility, but 50% of the time we don't know why people have infertility. And you know, a lot of times we like to think, okay, well, there's something wrong with the woman, but we forget about the men. Um, men are half of that equation when it comes wow. to pregnancy. And so there are, again, a lot of studies that have looked at what the diet is like for men um, comparing like a plant-based diet versus a animal-based diet and what impact it has on sperm shape sperm count and sperm motility. And there are a lot of studies that show that men who are, um, who consume these high fat animal protein heavy diets do have, um, more abnormal sperm, lower counts and lower motility. So it's really important to have that conversation. We talk about infertility to talk about the male partner as well and what their, their diet is like. And for women, um, the same sort of thing has been shown. There was one one study that looked at kind of like the fruit consumption. They looked at a lot of different types of foods, but they found that women who consumed very low amounts of fruit to no fruit actually had higher chances of infertility compared to women who did not incorporate whole fruits into their into their um, dietary. Uh, intake. So again, there's so much information that supports you can have healthy plant-based diets and you can have such a positive impact on all aspects of your gynecological health. That's great to know. When a woman is uh, struggling with infertility, who does she see for treatments? Is it you, yourself, the OBGYN? So there are um, there are a lot of OBGYNs who we do the entire workup. There are certain certain blood tests and things that we look for, ultrasounds, things like that. Um, if if there is a patient who has infertility because they have um, endometriosis, we're worried about endometriosis or cysts on their ovary um, or blocked tubes. We sometimes will have to take them for surgery to kind of correct 
affect that so that they can then achieve a pregnancy. Um, a lot of OBGYNs do what we call ovulation induction. So meaning we actually give women medication. Clomid is the most common one that's known um, to help induce uh, ovulation and then they're able to hopefully get pregnant. Beyond that, if we're not able to help women, um, most of the time we will spend, send them to a specialist, like a reproductive endocrinologist, because they can do um, a little bit more advanced techniques like um, artificial insemination, or if you need to have in vitro fertility, then those would, the REI, the reproductive endocrinologist would be the, the physician to do that. You know, I was wondering how closely you work with an endocrinologist because of, uh, you know, hormone balancing and other things like that. So in terms of a, like a reproductive endocrinologist or just a regular endocrinologist? Yeah, either. So for some of your patients who might be dealing with some of these issues, I assume that you then send them to an endocrinologist as well? If they are just kind of what we call pre-diabetic or have an insulin sensitivity, if they're trying to get pregnant and they don't have diabetes, a lot of times OBGYNs will manage them because there's some data that shows that adding medications like metformin can help these women, especially if they're trying to achieve pregnancy. And those are that's something that a lot of OBGYNs feel comfortable with. But there are some who will send them to a, uh, a, an endocrinologist, so someone that will specialize in like pre-diabetes or diabetes. Once they get diabetes, most OBGYNs are not managing diabetes because it requires, for most of the point, insulin. And there's so many different versions of, of insulin medications out. So at least me personally, and I know a lot of my colleagues, we don't manage diabetes. Now, again, when they're pregnant, that's a different story because for some reason we feel more comfortable managing diabetes in pregnancy than we do outside. But we also work a lot with um, high-risk maternal fetal medicine uh, physicians. If there is a woman who is pregnant and has diabetes because they will a lot of times do the more frequent monitoring um, and do adjustments to their medications. But um, in terms of trying to get pregnant and if you need any particular um, assistance from like a, technolo a technology standpoint, then mm -hmm. we send you to the reproductive endocrinologist. Is there something that you wish your own patients knew about their health or that you wish that they would prepare for before a visit? I think we're trying to be so much more open-minded when it comes to how we ask questions and how we learn about your history and your sexual history and your preferences. And so while I think that is our responsibility, I also encourage patients that anytime you go to a physician, if somebody says something that's maybe doesn't settle right with your sexual identity or how you identify as an individual, I would want myself, I would want to be corrected. And I know not everybody feels that way. And maybe as a, as a patient, you don't necessarily feel empowered to do that. But I, I encourage people when they go to see their doctor to feel confident that they can speak up so that they're addressed the way that they want to be addressed, that they are not touched without permission. I mean, even as a doctor, we should never lay our hands on somebody just because we're the doctor without asking for permission. Myself included, I was like, is it okay if I touch your breast? Or I'm going to put the speculum in. Are you okay with that? Because you just, I, I want to advocate that everybody should kind of be their voice for their autonomy, for their individuality, for the needs that they want to have addressed because it's so easy to feel kind of steamrolled as a patient. And as a doctor, we don't always think about how we can, how we're kind of in this really strong power dynamic and how we just do our thing without thinking about 
the intricate details that are different from one patient to another. So that's something that's been really, really important to me, really on my the forefront of my mind these last few months as I've been doing my own exploration and involved in a lot of different communities. Um, that's, I think, the most powerful thing that I can tell someone. If you feel like you're with somebody, you have a doctor who's not taking you seriously, you're allowed to get a second opinion. No one's going to fight for you if you don't fight for yourself. Yes, that's exactly what I was kind of referring to is that I feel that sometimes patients, they're afraid to ask questions. They don't don't know how to explain what the physician has told them, the recommendations, the use of medication and things like that. They shy away. Why do you think that is? I think part of it is because as a culture, like in medicine, I think we're so used to just being efficient um, because I think the way that the medical system is designed, it's not designed to allow us to really have a personal relationship beyond a 15 minute slot. And that's a disservice. And that's a topic for a whole other (laughs) podcast is how to fix the medical system because we are effectively, I mean, it's just becoming um, a way to monetize off of people's health and not really treat and find the underlying problems for the health that that we're seeing these people experience. And if we could focus on preventative measures and getting to know patients and getting to sit down with them without being penalized as a physician because you took 30 minutes instead of 15 minutes, then we would, I think we would see that patients would feel more comfortable telling us, hey, you have to be careful because I was sexually abused when I was a child. I don't like to be touched. You know, that's something that people won't tell you unless you really get to know them or you go to do an exam for the first time and they run up to the top of the table because you didn't ask them like what your, what your story was. So I think it's, it's a, I think it's a symptom of a much larger disease and that disease is the way that the healthcare system is set up. Yes, but we're lucky that we have physicians like yourself who are thinking about the patient, putting the patient first and then are very open to lifestyle medicine and really the holistic perspective of working with the patient. So we're very lucky to have you. Well, thank you. I am, I am one of many. So it's a, it's a great it's a great community and and for the work that you're doing and being involved in putting this information out, it's really helpful, especially for, for people like me to just have resources and um, other people to talk to and, and learn from. So I appreciate your work as well. Yes, well. Thank you. What do you love most about your work? Oh my gosh. Woo, so many good things. So as a, as a OBGYN, my, the thing that just impassions me is the relationship that I have with my patients. And I have before I left my my last job, I really just, I would stay with the patient. I, it didn't matter. If you were having a tough day, you were going to get my full attention. And my patients knew that. So if they knew that I was running late, they knew that something was going on. And if they needed me, I would do the exact same thing for them. Um, so I love that about my job. As What I'm doing right now is, is a little bit different, but it's really also a love of just empowering women and not that anybody needs permission for their own self-empowerment, but sometimes you feel comfortable when you have somebody tell you, this is okay. You are allowed to feel this. You're allowed to do this and explore this. And so that is something that I was telling my friend yesterday, I feel like when I'm, when I walk now, I almost feel like I'm a walking like Adam. Like I feel these electrons like in orbit around me because I'm just so like just energized for the potential of what women can do once they start to feel comfortable with 
their own power and their own um, um, self-esteem. So mm. that may be more than what you asked for, but. <laughs> what does 2021 hold for you? So 2021 is, um, my plans for 2021 will be, I'm, I'm hoping to start a uh, telemedicine virtual practice where I'm able to do kind of lifestyle integrative medicine for, um, for women and hormone management. So I'm very passionate about the transgender community and wanting to be a resource for um, hormone management for them, especially expanding my license in the surrounding states because it's really challenging in some places for um, people in that community to, to get access to hormones. Um, so that's what 2021 is, is going to hold. And then probably 2022 will be being able to open um, a full practice with gynecological care, aesthetic care, um, sexual health care, just like really a place where, where you can go and there's nothing that we won't talk about. Do you have a sort of a, a Facebook group support group? So I have, um, I have a Facebook group. It's called the ludicrous uterus. What? If you're interested in that. Um, and then on Instagram, it's at the ludicrous uterus. And so those are the places where, um, I put information and I have a podcast. I link podcasts through there, but you can find the podcast on Spotify, um, or, uh, iTunes or Google podcasts. And it's just called the ludicrous uterus. I think you're very entertaining on your podcast podcast. And so I enjoy it. It's going to get way more entertaining. I feel like those first three were probably the most tame it's going to be. So <laughs> Dr. Pierce, I have enjoyed getting to know you and learning more about what, um, how you work with your patients and about the what the future holds for you. So I want to say thank you. Do you have an, a final message? I just I love the work that you're doing. And I feel like you know, one thing if I can if I can impart one piece of information is that, you know, when we talk about plant based diet and health, you don't have to do 100% of the things 100% of the time, even if you make a small change. And that's what life is about, making a small change. And then the next time, it's a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Don't discount any small changes because you need the small ripples to make a wave. So thank you so much, Dr. Pierce, for being with us. Of course. Thank you. You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.